Hello, readers. Coming up, it's episode number 209 with College Football Hall of Famer Bill Snyder on Bill Snyder, My Football Life, and the rest of the story. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the self-help, sports, or young readers category for episode number 137 with Chris Bosch on Letters to a Young Athlete. This is Chris Bosch, author of Letters to a Young Athlete, and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Bill Snyder is a college football Hall of Famer thanks to a remarkable 27 years as the head coach at Kansas State, during which he took one of the historically worst programs in the country and made them champions. And he has just contributed to a book about his journey titled Bill Snyder, My Football Life and the Rest of the Story. Bill, thank you so much for the time today. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing good. Thank you. And I hope you are as well. I am. Thank you. So what was your goal with my football life and the rest of the story? Well, I don't know if there was any particular goal in mind. The, uh, I knew at some point in time that we were probably going to do a book, uh, but, uh, in, in actuality, the, the author, uh, Scott Fritchen, and who is an excellent writer and has been in sports around Manhattan, Kansas and Kansas State for a long time uh, and had written a couple other books with us, uh, was employed as a writer for a local communication organization or company and uh, was uh, and their business was going down, going south. And so they let him out and uh, he didn't have, you know, an opportunity to feed himself. So uh, I said, let's, let's do the book now. And uh, got a, uh, uh, you know, a, a prepayment from the publishing company and for him and gave him an opportunity to get back on his feet. And he's landed perfectly well. He's now working with the university and writing and does a great job. So that was the, uh, that was the purpose behind doing it at this time. Well, that's great to hear. And coach, that's been a theme throughout your life and coaching career is giving back to others. Was that foundation created with your upbringing with uh, what you went through as a child and uh, just how your parents tried to help others out too? Well, if, if I have any positive traits, they're all uh, because of uh, because my mother. I was raised as a only child to a single parent, and my mother uh, taught me anything and everything that uh, uh, that I possess at this particular point in time. You know, she was a marvelous woman. She was a woman of character and. Uh, intrinsic values and she tried to pass those on to me I'm sure I bucked the system quite a bit but uh, at the end of the day I had so much respect for her that uh, I wouldn't have done anything in the world to uh, disappoint her and consequently you know those things become habit in your life over a period of time what's your first football memory 
oh gosh, I don't know, probably playing in the brick streets uh, outside of our apartment building in uh, St. Joe, Missouri, when I was a little toot, uh, playing touch slash tackle football with uh, the neighborhood kids. Who was Dr. Norris Patterson and how did he help change the trajectory of your life? Well, Dr. Patterson was the athletic director at William Jewell College and also the football coach there. And when I finished high school, I'd always had the, oh, the dream, so to speak, that I would attend the State University, the University of Missouri, and wanted to play football. And I wasn't good enough. Uh, I didn't, didn't have a scholarship. Uh, so I, I walked on at the University of Missouri, uh, saved up money for many years and working uh, uh, on the weekends while I was going to high school, saved enough to pay one semester of tuition at the University of, uh, uh, of Missouri and went and tried out for the football team. Uh, I would see <clears throat> that's when they had freshman football and played freshman football games. And I was the eighth team quarterback on the <laughs> freshman team. So I was really down the list. And I realized at the time that it just wasn't gonna work there. And so after a semester, I came back home, St. Joe, went to work, went to a community college, uh, which is now called Missouri Western. It was St. Joseph Junior College at the time or community college. And a fellow by the name of Norris Patterson came to see me uh, and I, I know absolutely not why he did so, but nevertheless, he did. And William Jewell was a non-scholarship program, but he found uh, some aid uh, for me and uh, that I qualified for because of our lack of funding from the home. And he found a couple of uh, jobs that I could work and uh, wanted to a dire commitment from me that I would just conduct myself well, that I would work hard and give it the best shot that I could. And so I, I went and uh, uh, played at William Jewell College, graduated at William Jewell College, and Norris Patterson uh, was a guiding light in my life, you know, in regards to helping me with my intrinsic value system, uh, giving me guidance and direction and discipline uh, as well. And when I graduated, he found me a coaching and teaching position at uh, Gallatin High School in Gallatin, Missouri, a very small northern Missouri uh, community, wonderful community, small, but wonderful. And I started my career there. You tried to obtain your pilot's license in the mid-1960s. Why did that pursuit end abruptly? It ended, I, I was on my eighth hour. And this was in Indio, California. And so we took off uh, and, you know, two wheels. And I had always been, you know, just mimicking what the pilot was doing. And so we got up, got up in the air quite a ways and he turned to me and, well, no, uh, he started a descent. 
they were both holding on to the wheel and he starts the descent and we're going straight down like this and I'm starting to get a little antsy about it and he takes his hands off the wheel and he said okay you take it and I didn't know what to do I didn't know how to get out of a stall and or if I if I did I didn't remember whatsoever and I messed around and finally he helped me and we got it straightened out and he said now we're going to go up and try it again and here's what I want you to do and I said no that what we're going to do is you're going to put this plane on the ground and I'm never going to take a lesson from you again. And that was, that was it. So, it was, uh, so that was my last, last lesson. And I've always, uh, over the last X number of years, I thought, well, I should go back and, you know, and finish getting my license, but I never did. As far as your coaching career is concerned, you eventually coach under the legendary Hayden Fry at North Texas State University in 1976, a school that eventually became known as the University of North Texas, and you followed him to Iowa City to coach for the Iowa Hawkeyes, just some legendary staffs that Hayden Fry put together in Iowa City. Eventually, you were contacted about a vacancy at head coach for Kansas State in the middle of your 1988 season. Now, at this point, this may have been the worst program in the history of the sport. The only program at the time to lose 500 games. They only had one win in their previous 38 games, and they were winless in 27 straight games. Why did you eventually decide to go to Manhattan despite some obvious reluctance to take over a program that was such a difficult rebuild? Well, it was kind of interesting. The uh, athletic director at the time <clears throat> was a fellow by the name of Steve Miller. And Steve was a, a wonderful person, but he was a very persistent individual. And Steve would call me on a regular basis and ask me if I would come and interview for the job. And I said, no, I'm not interested. We're in the middle of the season and I don't want to disrupt what we're doing here at uh, the University of Iowa. And uh, he continued to call and continued to call and continued to call and have other people call me. And my response was always politely the same. And one day uh, we had an open week at the University of Iowa. And on a Sunday uh, early evening, I'm, I'm at home and uh, somebody knocks on the door and I answer the door and two gentlemen there, uh, which I don't know. And uh, one introduces himself as Steve Miller, the athletic director at Kansas State. And so I invited them in, they came in, sat down, and Steve began the, you know, the dialogue again about why I, you know, should come and talk with them at uh, Kansas State. And he said, uh, you don't, uh, it, it's not an interview, you have the job, if you'll just come uh, and look and see if it's something that you would be interested in. And I continued to say no and continued to say no. And finally, Steve said, he'd been there maybe two hours. And he said, coach, he said, uh, uh, do you have a spare bedroom in your home here? I said, yes, why do you ask? And he said, well, we're not leaving until you commit to coming to visit Kansas State. And I said, that's it. No, I'm not going to do it. And uh, I, I will think about it. I'll go that far. I will give it serious thought. 
I, and I said, whatever I would do, I can't do anything until the season is over. Don't even want to think about it until the season is over. And if you wait that long, that's foolish, you know, because you're missing out on the opportunity to get a variety of different coaches that are far better than I am, I'm sure. And Steve said, okay, we'll go and uh, we will talk, you know, this week when you call me. And so uh, I didn't call for a couple of days. And of course, Steve called and I finally said, okay, I will come and visit. But at the end of the season, I think it's foolish, but if you wait that long, I'll come at the end of the season. So they waited that long, uh, flew me down to Manhattan <clears throat> and uh, met at uh, what's now called Bramlage Coliseum, which is our basketball arena and we have a, a wonderful what's called a legends room and there's uh oh i don't know it's quite large and as, see as a longhorn fan i'm very familiar with the octagon of doom coach oh, okay there you go and so uh they took me over there uh and i met with uh oh the president the athletic director uh faculty members from all over the campus administrators students uh donors uh community people just people from all walks of life and they filled up the room there were probably 150 people there and everybody got up to take their turn about why this was a, a positive thing for me to do and after oh i don't know a considerable amount of time uh i pulled uh the athletic well i know it was john Weefald, the president i pulled uh dr Weefald aside and i said dr Weefald, uh could you find uh someone that would uh take me on to your campus and so he found uh, a young lady there who worked in the athletic department and she drove me down on the campus, let me out. I said, I'll meet you right here in one hour. And I went on the campus. Uh, and it's cold now. We're, we're talking November-ish in uh, the Midwest. So there, and there's snow on the ground. And so I walk around on the campus. And there are people out on the campus going from building to building. Uh, and I stop. I, I would guess 60, maybe 70 people. It's always been my guess uh, to talk. And uh, I would ask questions about uh, the community of Manhattan, about the university, uh, about the people, about the students, about <clears throat> the athletic program, about academics, about anything and everything that I could think of at the time. And what was so amazing to me is even though everybody was cold and shivering and wanted to get inside, Everybody stopped, nobody got in a rush. Nobody said, no, thank you, I've got to go on. Everybody stopped, visited with me, and was very gracious and answered my questions, et cetera. So when the young lady picked me up and took me back to uh, Bramlage uh, and I went inside and they asked me uh, uh, about the visit out on the campus, what I was looking for, et cetera. And I said, uh, well, uh, to make a long story shorter, uh, I said, I might be interested. And I said, uh, I need to go home, spend some time visiting with my family, and I will contact you 
in whatever period of time and uh, and let me know. But I I do feel like I might have a genuine interest. And you know, I was asked why. You know, what what changed your mind uh, about this? And I said the people. And there's that kind of somewhat infamous statement here that's published all around that. Uh, you know, I've always said I, I came to Kansas State University because of the people. Uh, we stayed because of the people and we came back because of the people, a second stint. So, uh, and we've made our home here for whatever it is now, 30, 30 plus years. And it was strictly that. It was because of such very, very gracious people uh, from all walks of life and students and all ages, etc. And it's just very representative of the community of Kansas State in the community of Manhattan. So that was kind of how it happened. Long story. That sense of community is a very powerful thing. And even though that was obviously a huge selling point for you, the reality of the shape that the program was in was a completely different thing. I had the pleasure of speaking with Bob Stoops a while back, and he said in his memoir, you really cannot truly comprehend just how bad things were when Bill Snyder took over and he was a part of that first staff with you. Considering all the fires around you that you were responsible for putting out, what was that starting point for you in rebuilding the program? Well, uh, it, it was worse off than what I thought when I accepted the job. I don't know that that would have altered anything, <clears throat> but I always, always approached it as uh, that's a positive. And because we're going to succeed with the smallest of steps. And uh, just to, uh, as you can imagine, you know, to win one ball game was a, a massive improvement, you know, considering they'd lost, you know, however many in a row. Uh, so it was my feeling that, uh, that we would go in and start from ground level and try to impart that Oh, a, a value system that was uh, embraced by daily, minute by minute improvement and embarking that philosophy to anybody and everybody that would have touched our program, that we will provide you with a manner and a method in which you can become better today than you were yesterday and better tomorrow with consistency than we are today. And we're not gonna go from A to Z, we're gonna take it one short step at a time. And, you know, as I said, it was a little, little different than what I'd anticipated. Uh, I, I, what I didn't know we had, that was when you could have 95 on scholarship. Uh, we had 45 scholarship players. Uh, the lowest scholarship count in the history of college football. Also, we still hold that record. Uh, and obviously, you could only take whatever it was at the time, 25 or 28, I don't remember. But uh, so it, it took a long time. It took us probably 12, 14 years to get to whatever the maximum scholarship level was at that, uh, at that time. But uh, I, uh, I, I told our players, you know, that uh, first and foremost, uh, I wasn't, uh, every, everybody had a chance. And of course, they hear that all the time. Every coach is going to say that. And I said, I will never know, and I, which I didn't, 
you know, who in this group is on scholarship and who's not. Because I've told the people I don't want to know and I don't want anybody to bring me those records. And I don't want our coaches to have those records. Everybody's starting, you know, from ground zero. All of us are. I took the players out on the, on the field and uh, turned the scoreboard on in the stadium. And I said, uh, I want you to look at the scoreboard. And I said, I am not going to assess you based on what that scoreboard said. Mm. I will only assess you based on your commitment and accomplishment of daily improvement. That doesn't mean that there's, you have to score X number of touchdowns or uh, make X number of tackles whatsoever. It just means that you need to be better as a person, better as a student, and better as a player fundamentally every single day. And we're going to provide you one with programs to do that it's not just a matter of me saying you get better and then you go out and do it we're going to provide you with a way in which you can do that and then we're going to provide you with an assessment a daily assessment and the coaches will tell you you know every single day a big portion of our staff meetings long staff meetings were designated on everybody going around and taking each individual they had that they were coaching and identify what that individual did in that past day in order to improve and what he needed to do and how he was going to be taught to do it uh, to become better that, that given day. And we were, I mean, that's very basic. I understand that, but that's kind of the way we were. And what was significant about it is that, uh, that our players could see, you know, over a period of time that they were getting better and they could see each other getting better. And uh, we won their, the first ball game, uh, I think was in the, what, maybe third game of the season. And obviously everybody was excited and, and all, but uh, it was the only game that we won the whole season. And everybody that I knew in the coaching field said, Bill, you had better get out of there <laughs> while you can. I said, you know, you stay much longer, you'll be an insurance salesman. Nothing wrong with insurance salesmen, but uh, what they were saying is, you know, you're, you're not going to be very secure in your job. And at the end of the first year, when they were saying that, I said, I've never been more convinced that we will be successful here at Kansas State. And the reason for me to say that, uh, I couldn't back it up by being <clears throat> by being one in 10, I think, or one in nine, whatever we were. But the fact that I honestly believed that our players had made those kind of strides, they were committed to daily improvement and they were making daily improvement. Uh, the, the grades went up, we had no attitude problems we had no discipline problems we did improve on the field you know we weren't winning ball games but that was the foundation and it went from we won one game the first year we won four the second year we won five then we won seven then we won nine then we won ten then we won eleven four or five years in a row something like that so it was just that gradual improvement 
And we always had something to support that concept of just daily individual and collective improvement in all facets. And uh, that, was a, that was the history of it. Well, that one win your first year, a 20 to 17 victory over North Texas State, is one that Bob Stoops still says is one of his most special moments as a coach. What was that first win like for you? Well, you know, uh, I don't, I don't get emotional about wins and losses uh, because we were always trying to teach, uh, you know, an even competitive keel, so to speak. And I obviously had to, you know, to do that. I always felt if you get, uh, if you get excited about, overly excited about victory, not that you're not pleased and excited about it, but if you get overly excited about it, what do you do when you lose? And so either way, you're setting examples for your players. And uh, I wanted to be, uh, I, I wanted them to be consistently good all the time. And so I felt it was important to be able to display uh, an emotion that of expectation that you expected to be good each, each time out, that we expected to win, so to speak. So uh, that, that was kind of the nature behind that. But uh, it was, uh, uh, it, it was, and it was an interesting ball game too, because we, we got ahead and then late in the ball game fell behind and we were, I don't know, a minute and a half or so uh, to go in the ball game and we were behind. And uh, the offense marched, uh, I think Carl Straw was the quarterback and uh, David Hernandez caught the, I believe it was, he caught the final touchdown pass to win the ball game as uh, right at the end of the ball game. So it was a, it was a nice one. Stands, I mean, our attendance, our attendance, you know, was maybe one fifth of the stadium, hmm. you know, at best. Uh, but every single one of them was on the field because there wasn't, there wasn't a student there. I shouldn't say that. I doubt that there was a student in the stands who had ever witnessed a Kansas State victory. Hmm. So they emptied it on the, and, and it it was pleasing to the players and, and I was happy for them. You know, and uh, I wasn't a sourpuss. I just uh, didn't, I didn't jump up and down. That was all. Well, I think it plays into what is a pretty stoic nature for you that you did impart on your players and coaches over the years. Well, I, you know, I guess some people could call it stoic. I, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I don't think it's that bad, but uh Stoicism is a good thing, coach. <laughs> well, it's is one of uh, I think consistency as much as anything, you know, and and that's that was part. You know, we have those. Uh, you've probably seen them. We have those uh, sixteen wildcat goals for success that people yeah. talk about, and they're all over the country. And uh, and the very first one, you know, uh, is commitment. Uh, but as you go down, you see consistency there, and consistency is just one of those intrinsic values that become so important. You know, and uh, you know, in all facets of life, not just football. Bill, why do you love the story of Pinocchio so much? <laughs> you know, I could probably. I, I don't want to mess up your audience right here. Can you look over my left shoulder here? 
Oh, yeah. I see two Pinocchio figurines, as a matter of fact. Oh, there's a whole bunch of them up there. And okay. I've got a, uh, I've got a plethora of Pinocchio things, but Pinocchio is, uh, you know, an extremely, it is highly significant uh, to me. And uh, I had such a great appreciation for the story of Pinocchio. In fact, there's a thing right in, in front of me. It's a Pinocchio cup. And there's Geppetto. And I always marveled at Geppetto because Geppetto had such amazing patience with this little boy with the, the growing nose who you know, got himself in trouble all the time. And Geppetto sacrificed, you know, virtually sacrificed his life, you know, to save Pinocchio. And, uh, and the story kind of displays that in a number of different ways. And uh, I always had a great appreciation for that uh, because uh, my mother, you know, had sacrificed so much for me. And uh, seeing the meaning of being able to make those kind of sacrifices for others and making sacrifices for youth, trying to uh, help uh, young people create a, a value system of worth. Uh, all those things, you know, kind of entered into that. And to see it happen to Pinocchio and you know the way it happened with some humor obviously involved with it was always interesting to me and when I was very young uh, I went to see uh, Pinocchio uh, the movie Pinocchio and that's when I it just all of a sudden hit me you know how meaningful that really was and so I've always felt that way and I've collected Pinocchio things people have sent me uh, I've got a plethora of Pinocchio uh, items and people have sent me from all over the world. You know, I've got some, uh, uh, some uh, Pinocchio wooden figurines that uh, were, were made in Italy uh by a company that seems to be the most profound in uh creating uh paraphernalia for uh, for the story of pinocchio and you know people have just sent them and i'm very gracious for it i have a bunch of pictures and you know it's just uh, so i'm reminded of uh, of pinocchio every day and uh, i bought uh when uh, when I came to, well, I came to Manhattan, in fact, and uh, they reprinted uh, a book on Pinocchio. And I went out to find it, and I found one store in Manhattan, Kansas, carried the book, and I bought every book they had. And so every one of my children and all the grandchildren that I had at the time all have the Pinocchio book, hmm. and so they're 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 very updated on the story as uh, as well. So and hopefully that some of that carries over for them as well. 
been beneficial for me. Thank you for sharing that. Your coaching tree, coach, is one of the best in the history of the sport. Bob Stoops, who we've talked about already, Brett Bielema, Dan McCarney, Mark Mangino, Jim Levitt, Brent Venables, and Dana Demmel, among the names who went on to accomplish greater things. Was there any one quality that you looked for when seeking out new assistants? Well, I wanted young people that, I say young people, they weren't all young. You know, I hired some coaches that were older. Uh, but I wanted, I wanted coaches on our staff that were gentlemen that, that cared about young people that were uh, prolific in their own uh, conduct, that they handled themselves appropriately, uh, that they were good people, that had the intrinsic values that we talk about, that we try to instill in our players. I wanted to make sure that coaches had that. You know, so often it's so easy for coaches to go out and say, work hard, be a good person, go to school, you know, be a good student, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that, that's, Locker rooms are full of those words, you know, discipline, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, do you, do you really live it? And do you have programs in place to promote those things? And I wanted people that, that really uh, were interested in, uh, in developing the highest quality young people that we could. You know, yes, I wanted to be quality coaches and people that understood the game and uh, et cetera. And for the most part, I've, I've, you know, started with people that I knew uh, because I hadn't been, you know, from a coaching standpoint. Uh, I'd been in the game at Iowa, but, uh, you know, I didn't know all around the country. So there were coaches out there that were very fine coaches that I just didn't know about some of the other aspects of their lives. Uh, so I, I tended to go with coaches that I had been familiar with that I knew that had worked with and then gradually expanded from that to other coaches because I've learned what was out there over a period of time. But I just, you know, wanted guys that would get along extremely well with the and still have that, that aura of discipline. You know, it's a game changing day. And, you know, I, I think you see, not in all cases, but you see in some cases, you see, uh, you know, the, the leadership can kind of bend uh, in favor of the athlete. I mean, the rules are such now that, uh, you know, if you bark at a young guy, then uh, he beats you into the locker room and he's, on a bus someplace to another school in 15 minutes and transfers and all of a sudden you're playing against him five days later. I mean, the rules allow that. Uh, and it's, and it has put a lot of coaches, you know, in that position where, you know, I, I can't, I, I can't be as, I can't be demanding uh, in, in, a, in an appropriate way. You know, just certain things that I, I can't coach the way I'm accustomed to coaching. Uh, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, saying that there's merit to be somebody that runs around with a ball bat and hitting 
youngsters over the head with. That's not what I mean. But I think you do have to have command. I think you do have to have discipline in your program. And you have to have young people that are willing to respond to hard work and to discipline and to doing things right and uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, uh, that, that certainly sounds old school. I understand that, but I'm, I'm convinced, uh, you know, you don't win without those things. You're not successful without those things, I don't believe. Is that why Darren Sproles was the perfect prototype player for your program? Darren was, that's uh, well stated. Uh, Darren was a, uh, you know, Darren, no one had to mold Darren. Uh, you know, Darren, <clears throat> and we were fortunate to have Darren, you know, he really wasn't recruited very highly. And, uh, you know, because he was, you know, he came up to my chest uh, and height. I think he's, I was just with him. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I think five foot six inches tall. Uh, didn't didn't weigh, you know, much. Such a mighty mouse, though. But he was, you know, one of the, his height was. He used everything in his favor. Mm-hmm. You know, when he was quick and his had excellent change of direction. Uh, he was a very positive young guy. Uh, he was mentally strong. Uh, he had great balance. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, people couldn't find him, you know, <laughs> here he's, uh, you know, five foot six at that time, he might not have been that tall. And, you know, when he takes the ball and gets in a running position, he's probably five foot tall and all these linemen are, you know, they're six, six, 300 pounds. And they're going like this defensive people couldn't find there and, and all the way through his professional career they couldn't find him until he's out in the open. Now he's got the <clears throat> change of direction and the quickness that he can match up with anybody. And obviously, obviously did, uh, but, but he was, a he was a great person. Wonderful individual. Deuce Vaughn reminds me a little bit of him. Do you see a, a little bit of Sproles when you watch Deuce Vaughn play? Very much. And I think uh, a lot of people do. Uh, I think he's, and, and I've met Deuce. Uh, and I think he, he seems to be a, a good quality person uh, and, and comes from a book, good, uh, good background. I know uh, uh, Darren certainly did. Darren, before, just as Darren was getting ready to come to Kansas State, he lost his mother. Mother passed away. Mm. And that was, that was really painful for him because he's a great family person. Uh, but nevertheless, I, yes, I see a comparison between the two. I think longevity will determine that, but I, I think it's there with Deuce. And I think Deuce is one of those young guys like Darren that, uh, which I'm, I'm beginning to see and I uh, can greatly appreciate is that he's, he's a team player. He's not about himself, but he's about, you know, his team. And, and others and just does whatever it is he can do to try to help others. And Darren was so much like that. You're a big fan of handwritten notes. While you admittedly cannot recall most of the important notes that you've written for others, is there a memorable note that someone has written for you that comes to mind? Well, I can't tell you there is one in particular. There, there are many. You know, a lot of people 
you know, it, it's so easy for most people to get on a typewriter and type things out or on a computer and do that. And I've never learned to type. So I uh, take me forever to do that. And so it's a lot easier just to write the note. But I always distinguish between receiving a handwritten note as opposed to receiving a typewritten note. And, uh, you know, for some reason, you know, secretaries can do your typewritten notes for you, but you know, you do the handwritten note. So it just meant that someone put some time and some effort into <clears throat> constructing a particular note that they would send. And that was always impressive to me. Uh, but I have received so many and I, uh, you know, I, I have uh, boxes. We have a, uh, a room on the lowest level here, which is a storage room that is full of nothing but boxes of communication, you know, of notes, letters, emails, if you will, et cetera, that I've received over, you know, all my coaching years. And, and people are really so very, very gracious. Uh, but, you know, to say there is one in particular, uh, you know, you receive some from some very prestigious people that, you know, obviously you hold in, in high esteem and that's significant for you. But the, uh, you know, there, there are so many that address uh, problems that they have in their life. You know, uh, somebody who has just lost a mother, somebody who has just lost a son, uh, someone who has been uh, in an automobile accident and injured, someone who has a child that has been seriously injured. I just a variety of different things like that. And, uh, you know, sometimes asking for, you know, maybe a note, you know, would you send a note to my son who was injured in an automobile accident and admires your program, etc. Uh, there's a lot of those, but a lot of them just uh, saying, you know, here's something that uh, that happened and I wanted to share it with with you. And those are all meaningful to me. You were nine and four against the Longhorns in an era where Texas was pretty good at football. I will probably hear some iteration of that. We own Texas chant in my nightmares for the rest of my life. So thank you very much for that coach. What was your secret to uh, your successes against UT? Oh, I, I don't know. I think we became, we became a, a pretty good football program. And I think there was a period of time when we were playing extremely well and we had quality, quality players and good coaches and the expectations were high uh, that, uh, and we, and we played well against them. I think we were highly motivated always against uh, Texas. Uh, it was always the feeling that uh, Texas, because of such a storied program and so many wonderful people there, uh, many good friends, but, you know, there was that, the Texas people, the support of Texas seemed to have that, uh, you know, I, uh, that, that attitude or that approach, you know, that we're so much better than you are. <clears throat> and uh, that, <clears throat> I think that, that also played into it for, you know, for our players, because that, uh, not that our fans didn't think they were pretty, we were a pretty good football team. They just didn't, you know, promote it the same way. Let me put it that way. But I think we were just, uh, we were good teams at the time and uh, we didn't have 
you know, the numbers that uh, Texas did, but you only get 11 on field at a time. So that, uh, I think we matched up reasonably well there. Perhaps on that note, what do you think of Texas and Oklahoma moving to the SEC? Well, I'm, I, I don't know all the particulars about it. And I think both schools and their administration uh, have, uh, have reasoning behind it and a purpose. Uh, I certainly wasn't in favor of it. I uh, don't feel strongly about it. Uh, I've, I've really uh, admired the, uh, the leadership and the guidance, you know, from both of those universities. You know, I know uh, a lot of the people there and feel strongly about them. I, you know, my guess is that you know, the support base and the dollars and cents behind it, you know, certainly uh, was a, a push in the back, you know, to make that move. I, I don't think there's, I may be wrong, but I don't think there's that much more money involved for them. But I think the people that have the money that they invest in the program said, hey, we need to be in the Southeastern Conference. That's, that's guesswork on my part. No one, no one has told me that. Uh, but, but I don't... Uh, uh, I just, I just thought their place was in with the Big Twelve because they had, you know, they'd entered the the conference and come along with the conference over the years and been uh, so supportive and had meant so much to the strength of the of the conference as well. And, and you know, now we've gotten to the point where there's a little bit more balance in the conference. Uh, but uh, anyway, I wish them all well. I, uh, I have no doubt about that. Joe Castiglione's a dear friend of mine, and and I've never I've never approached the topic with him, you know, about that. But uh, but I admire him, and I know that he, you know, whatever whatever the reasons were, uh, I'm sure they'll make the best of it. But I think it's going to be a struggle. Are you a fan of expanding the college football playoff beyond four teams? And if so, what is the optimal number? Uh, you know, I don't have an answer to that, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, to do it, uh, you know, six creates a problem, eight uh, creates a problem, 12, uh, if eight creates a problem, 12 creates a problem. Uh, and we're talking again about, you know, if you, if you have, uh, if you have four, then you enhance the season by two games. So you're talking about playing, you know, probably 14, 14 games. Uh, that, that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty decent load on young people, no matter what their strength level is, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's you know it's just it, it's a very tedious process is preparing for a football game, and when you get into playoffs, et cetera. You know, that, that tediousness is going to continue and elevate, I'm quite certain. Uh, if you were to go beyond 14 games, uh, uh, again, if you were to have uh, eight, uh, eight playoff teams, now you're talking about, uh, what, 16, 16 ball games. Uh, you know, and it, it's easy to say, well, the NFL does it, you know, but uh, I, I don't know anybody in the NFL that's trying to get an education. I don't know anybody that's spending, you know, the appropriate amount of time in the classroom trying to be the best student they can be to enhance their future. And uh, 
football is is that tediousness that uh, it takes time, you know, and it's not just, you know, they set standards and how long you can practice. So, you know, you go meet for an hour and uh, practice for a couple hours, whatever the numbers are now. And, and yet, you know, it's the, the time that doesn't count, you know, the time you're in the training room, you know, that you're getting treatment, you know, uh, an hour in the morning, an hour after uh, practice, the period of time it takes to get taped, to get dressed, etc. You know, pretty soon you're spending, you know, six, seven hours a day just in that athletic endeavor and still trying to maintain, you know, a grade point average that is not just passing but a grade point average that is uh, indicative of what you're capable of, you know, because somebody is going to offer you a position uh, to allow you to earn a living. And, uh, you know, the better student you are coming out of college, uh, probably not always, but probably, you know, the better position you're going to get and you're going to have to be, you're going to have to be accountable. I mean, if you go into accounting, you'd better be good at it. You know, if you're going into banking, you better be good at it. If you're going into business, you'd better be good at it. I mean, that's it. Everything's result oriented because it's money oriented. And <clears throat> just because you had a football background doesn't make you successful. I know, you know, too many people, many of them come out of professional athletes, don't have a dime today, you know, just because they didn't have that you know, what it takes to be successful anywhere other than the football field. So I, I think you take so much time out of their, out of their lives that uh, it's hard. It's hard. And by that same token, are you glad since such a small percentage of these guys end up playing professionally and even those that do often have a very short shelf life, are you glad that college athletes are now able to earn a little bit of money on things like name, image, and likeness? Well, I, I have mixed emotions about it. I think, yes, it's a positive thing that they're able to receive a little bit more. The NC2A, you know, the NC2A gets discredited for a lot of things. <clears throat> and uh, several years ago, the NC2A uh, passed a ruling in which uh, you were to uh, enhance the scholarship awards for athletes and I, I, I don't know six eight hundred dollars something that was just a cash uh, allotment that you could draw from aside from scholarship books etc cetera, etc cetera. and I thought that was a positive thing it was positive because everybody got it you know it wasn't just your best player it wasn't just your quarterback etc uh, so I like the idea that yes that they can earn some money this way but what I dislike about it is the inequity of it. Uh, it's, uh, it's not equitable uh, and from one school to the next. You know, one school is, uh, uh, you know, their support base is uh, a plethora of millionaires, you know, and another one doesn't have as many. So there's not as many people to put money into uh, this system, NIL system. And the other thing is that it is not equal for the players, which I don't, I don't appreciate that. You know, I think it should be for everyone. I, one school, I want to say maybe Nebraska, uh, is, uh, I read something about this, but they had uh, 
taken uh, the money that had, had been offered up and put it in a pot and distributed it equally uh, amongst all the players. So uh, however they did that, and I'm sure they did it in a legal manner, uh, that I can, I can buy into. I think if the NC2A were to say, yes, they can receive up to such and such amount, uh, then, you know, then they, you know, I can, I can live with that. If that makes any sense to you. It makes a ton of sense. And last question, Bill, hopefully this moment is a long ways off, but when you take that final breath, how do you hope to be remembered? Uh, good father. I'm just messing anything. Good father, good husband. Uh, you know, from a football standpoint is, uh, you know, hopefully somebody that really cared about, uh, young people and, and all facets of their lives and, uh, football not being top of the list. Bill Snyder is a college football hall of famer in recognition of a remarkable 27 years as the head coach at Kansas State, during which he took one of the his most historically worst programs in the country and made them champions. And he's just written a book about his journey on and off the football field titled My Football Life and the Rest of the Story. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Coach, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this excellent book. Well, thank you very much, Trey. You're very uh, gracious and pleasure to visit with. Join me next time with episode number 210 with award-winning actor Brian Cox on Putting the Rabbit in the Hat. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.